show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. And welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Illyri. We are back in the house. Yes, How are you? Are. Have you recovered? What are we serving today? I think I've just about recovered. Dignity is not back, but I have recovered physically. <laughs> yeah, you can't recover something you never had, to be honest, mate. <laughs> Let's not start this season with shadiness. <laughs> Um, I think we're both drinking the same thing today, mm-hmm. so yes. I think we should do a one, two, three, and then say what we're okay. drinking after three. One, two, three. Shivers. Shivers. <sighs> yep. So we're talking Shiraz. Well, actually, I'm going to be talking about Shiraz. Yes. Are you going to be talking about Shiraz? Uh, well, some would argue that I am, others would argue that I'm not. These argumentative people. Please explain. Mm. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Syrah, which is a grape that's grown throughout the Rhone Valley in France. Um, But a quick Google will kind of tell you, oh, it's the same as Shiraz, but it's not really. Um, So I'll talk to you about the French variation of Syrah slash Shiraz, as you will find online. Uh, So, yes, we're in the Rhone Valley. Uh, the wines that are made from Syrah grapes, um, they vary greatly. Uh, even over small changes in like the locations of the vines, the difference in the soil quality, even as much as the changes in the slope of the terrain, it'll change a really, it'll produce a really different type of wine. So the Syrah grape can produce really mineral tannic wines like Hermitage to fruity and perfumed wines like the Cote Roti. Um, Syrah, as well as producing these tasty wines that are made with just the Syrah grape, is also a key component to many blends. Uh, it can be used to structure, to add structure and colour wines such as the Grenache, which is a Southern Rhone blend, um, Côtes de Rhone, and my favourite, the Chateauneuf du Pape. Yum, yum. Mm. Uh, Syrah is also the only red grape used in the wines of Northern Rhone. They're not allowed to, well, I don't know if they're not allowed to or they choose not to, but it's the only red grape used in the wines of Northern Rhone. Uh, in 1968, there were only 2,700 hectares of Syrah vineyards in France. If you prefer acres, that's 6,700 acres. Um, at the time, they'd not really had much attention in the wine world for several decades, so the vineyards weren't planted to their full capacity. However, these wines of Northern Rhone were rediscovered by wine writers in the 70s, and the plantings expanded massively. Um, it then received an extra boost in the 80s and 90s when an influential wine writer, Robert M. Parker Jr., started awarding them, awarding them really Didn't he sing school. the Ghostbusters theme? <laughs> yes, he did. And Parker Jr., I thought he did the Ghostbusters theme. Yeah, it was. Like, the Ghostbusters was about Shiraz, did you not know? I know we did an episode on it a long time ago, but I don't remember <laughs> the Shiraz. <laughs> 
Anyway, he of yeah. Ghostbusters fame mm-hmm. uh, was awarded them really high scores, um, up to the perfect score of 100 points to the wines of some of these Rome producers. Um, also, some argue that the popularity of Australian Shiraz on the export market also played a role. Uh, by 1988, the total French planting stood at 27,000 hectares, which is 60, 67,000 acres, so considerably increased. And by the millennium, um, the survey found that 50,700 hectares had, had just suddenly popped up, 125,000 acres of Syrah vineyards, making France the world's largest plantation of Syrah. Um, While previously unused parts of Northern Rhone vineyards had been planted with Syrah as part of this expansion, the major part of the new French Syrah plantations are in the south. Um, Uh And it's quite interesting because, as I said earlier, they only create blends, or it's predominantly blends that the Syrah's grape is used for in the southern vineyards. So it just goes to show how much of a kind of popularity that, you know, Coast de Rhone, Chateau Park, it's the ones that we know and we see in the supermarkets. So it's that that's really driven the popularity of the grape, even though it is just produced as a single grape wine in the north. Um, one sad thing, and probably why it makes them so special, is that the vines in France often suffer from a form of dieback. Um, it's characterised by the leaves turning red in the late summer, and deep cracks start to develop in the stem above the graft. Um, and it can just kill off the whole vineyard. It's just kind of game over when that happens. It was first observed in the 90s in the south of France, but it's now unfortunately widespread. Um, it's believed to be caused by a mismatch between the rootstock and skion, rather than an infection or a fungus. Right, yeah, because I've heard of this and they've said specifically it is a Syrah or Shiraz disease like it isn't named after a fungus or a mm-hmm. mold or anything external and it's kind of like yeah. at first yeah and it's interesting because I, I read a lot about it and this is one of the only places where I read that it's believed to be caused by it's other ca- mm-hmm. other kind of bits of research i found just said we don't know what causes it so uh. still a bit of a mystery but mm. a rather pesky mystery um so let's dig into it a bit the origin so the grape variety originates from the geographical area between valence leon and dauphin according to published genetic analysis it's a crossbreed of Monjus Blanche, a variety from Savoy, and Duresa Noir, an ancient variety from Ardèche, to the north of Valence. Um, so it's not actually from the region of Shiraz in Iran, which lends its name to some of the Australian wines. I think you're going to talk to us about those later. I am, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So don't be getting confused with Shiraz. Um, aromas. So Syrah's typical aromas, violet, blackberry, blueberry, and blackcurrant, they're quite well known, um, but other flavours can be distinguished in the wines. Um, these are black olive, pate, smoky peppery notes, aromatic hints of peat and graphite. Uh, and with age, the wines made with Syrah also take on gamia notes as well as leather and truffle. Mm, man, it's, sorry, I need more wine. I'm just sitting here thinking, mm-hmm. this sounds delicious, so I'm going to drink some. <laughs> This is why I made you go first today, because I tasted mine before we started and it was absolutely cracking. 
Um, just on a tasting note thing. Yes. Sorry, were you going to talk about um, the black? What makes it taste like black pepper? Um, no. Can you tell us what makes it black? Just taste like black pepper. Just because I only learned it through this this research. It's a it's a chemical called uh, rotundone, mm. which is pre- pre- present in a few things. So in black pepper, in certain things like uh, basil and geranium, and you know other herbal things. But it is present in not all, but most uh, syrup. And it's the reason why I really like Syrah and Shiraz is because I love the taste of black pepper. So I love that that pepperiness in it. I didn't know, so I knew that much. What I didn't know is that not everyone can smell and, and therefore taste the flavour of uh, Rotundone. It's one of those things that some people can and some people can't that we kind of we've spoken about in other things before. But I didn't I didn't realise that. Not me. Can Every you, day is a school can day. You, I can, yeah. Can you smell it? Love the yeah. smell, yeah. Presumed so, me too. But then it suddenly kind of made sense why um, some friends I've had Shiraz with in the past have been just like, oh, it just tastes of fruit. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, now I understand why. Mm. I am drinking, just one I've paused, I am drinking an Australian Shiraz, by the way, not a French Syrah. Oh. Yeah. I'm drinking a French Syrah. I had it from Naked Wines. Yum, yum. Very nice. Um, so, Syrah can be used to create red wines with a good degree of alcohol, a moderate acidity, and they can age for many years thanks to their prominent tannins. The wines are often of an extremely high quality. Uh, the colours generally are really intense, dense and dark red with a hint of blue. Uh, they stand out thanks to their aromatic complexity and the subtlety of their tannins, which are strong yet silky. Uh, it's thus a great variety that can keep for many years, and aging it in oak barrels rounds out its tannins and enriches the aromatic potential. Um, as well as these delicious red wines, Syrah is often used to make very, very fruity rosé wines as well. I'm not sure if I've unknowingly had a Syrah-based rosé wine, but I will be looking out for one now. I have, and I've also had Australian um, Cuvée sparkling Shiraz. Mm-hmm. as well which was very nice mm-hmm. do you know about the um the oak barrel thing it's because because it has so many tannins it needs to oxidize to round out but it actually doesn't absorb the oak flavor very well at all mm. so a lot of people think that because shiraz is oaked it's going to taste oaky but it generally doesn't mm. uh the cultivation areas of syrah um so it's an extremely versatile grape Uh, It's nonetheless found in rather warm climates with a relatively low humidity. So it kind of excludes the oceanic climates of northwestern and southwestern France. Uh, It's found throughout southern France and the Mediterranean perimeter from the Pyrenees to Nice, as well as Corsica. Uh, It's also grown in smaller quantities in some vineyards at the eastern edge of southwestern France, not far from Toulouse, where the continental influence is stronger. It grows on long branches that are quite fragile uh, and in the springtime winds, um, which are common in the Mediterranean area, um, they suggest that you should plant them in areas that are protected from the wind and it should be carefully trained um, with a cordon. Um, If you're pruning them long, use the cordon to train them, Um, but you can do head pruning, so short pruning, um, which is enough in most cases, particularly in southern regions. The optimum harvest period is quite short. I'm giving you all of this information just in case this is like your retirement plan. Maybe you just go to France and buy a vineyard or find a nice rich man with a vineyard. 
Yeah, I mean, that that part it yeah. absolutely is, yeah. <laughs> so now you know cultivation areas. Uh, you'll also need to know about the soil. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned, it's susceptible to lots of nasty diseases and bits and bobs. Um, it's susceptible to something called chlorosis, and so it's poorly adapted to soils with high active limestone content. Uh, so it fares better in rocky, shallow, well-drained soil. Granite or schist soils mixed with clay, which are more acidic, they'll uh, suit it perfectly. These soils lend wines made from a syrah a mineral quality that is highly sought after. Um, and as I mentioned, it's uh, susceptible to that grey mould that kills off the vineyards, but also mites. So mites, grey mould, chlorosis, wind, it's a pain in the ass but worth it because it's tasty. <laughs> Wind is a pain in the ass. Wind is a pain in my ass. Uh, last but not least, how should I serve it? Um, so I know lots of people, the kind of myth-busting button would be hit when people say you can't chill red wine, it should be kept at room temperature, etc, etc. Um, not necessarily. So Syrah has an ideal temperature range because of the higher alcohol levels, roughly between 13 and 15 and a half percent. It should actually always have a slight chill or the alcohol will taste hot and the flavours will be quite dull. However, if it's served too cold, the aromas and flavours will be muted. Um, so the ideal temperature range is 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit, which can be achieved with 15 minutes in the refrigerator. I don't know why I'm going to say this last bit, but I'm going to. If you don't finish a bottle when you open it, <laughs> replace the cork and stick it back in the fridge. The flavours will stay fresh for two to four days. Who's Who's got a bottle of wine for two to four days in the fridge? I don't know, but mine's a screw cap, so that's going to be easy. <laughs> but beyond that, the wine will start to oxidise, but I don't yeah. think that's ever something we've got to worry about now. Just topping up. <laughs> it's, it's it's fun not starting first. You get to uh, top up before it's even your go. Yeah, it's tricky then. You don't usually get this experience. You've got to slur your way through your bit now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my Shiraz is quite strong. It is, it is just under 15. This is true. Hmm. Um, all right, so well, I'm going to... Uh, maybe a couple of things just to round off um, Syrah, just in terms of the naming of it i suppose which then might take me back to where i want to go which is you mentioned the um the hermitage or the uh, the hermitage uh variety mm -hmm. do you know where that comes from i'm not sure but the one i'm drinking is a hermitage <laughs> so this comes from one of the legends really of why syrah is called syrah which is that it was a returning crusader Guy de Sterenburg, uh, who brought these cuttings back to France from uh, his time in, in the Middle East, you know, specifically in Iran, and that he became a hermit and developed a vineyard on a steep hill where he lived in the Rhone Valley, and so it became known as Hermitage. Hermitage. Um, so that's one of the kind of stories behind Syrah being a corruption or, well, not corru you know, a corruption or evolution of Shiraz. Mm -hmm. Um, say wine coming from Iran, you know, possibly via Greece and Rome or whatever, and ending up in in France. Uh, and also, there were there are stories that Syrah comes from Syracuse, uh, in Sicily, 
that the grapes came from there, that it might have even come from Syria um, and come from there as well. But as you rightly pointed out, we do know that it comes from France um, and, it, and it's not that. That's through DNA testing. Um, we know that its grandparent is Pinot Noir. We know that its sibling is Viognier. So it kind of casts a lot of doubt on at least that direct influence. But I think it's very complicated to say that it isn't from Iran because you would have to kind of bet that at some point, if you trace the, the vines back far enough, they are coming from the Middle East. It's just that our DNA testing only goes to France. Mm. But I do agree that it's not necessarily the case that Syrah comes from, from Shiraz. Um, as a name etymologically yeah. but it's really hard to untangle this story I've done a lot of research and I'm still not quite sure <laughs> um, so I thought the best place to start is actually to take us back is to take us to Shiraz the city in Iran and then see where we go from there you up for a little bit of a journey yes please okay where are we mm. going first I'm just having a sip to prepare myself so we're going to go to Shiraz direct Shiraz to Shiraz is... okay cool Director Shiraz. Shiraz is the, um, because to be honest, we have been around the Middle East, particularly Mesopotamia, a lot in this <laughs> podcast. So I thought, let's just try and keep it to Shiraz. Um, it's the fifth most populous city of Iran. The earliest references to it are on clay tablets that date back to 2000 BCE. It's one of the top tourist cities in Iran, um, or at least it was kind of prior to um, the, the current troubles. Um the Troubles. I made it sound like it was Ireland from the um, the 1990s. Anyway, um, it's known as a city of poets, gardens, wine, nightingales and flowers. Um, they have crafts there that consist of inlaid mosaic of triangular designs, silverware, pile carpet weaving, gorgeous architecture, particularly the, particularly the pink mosque uh, designs there which has this lovely courtyard and these stained glass windows and um, all this beautiful patterning in it. If you haven't ever looked at pictures of Shiraz or looked at videos, you know, like 12 videos on YouTube, do it. It's an absolutely stunning city. Um, it's also home to Iran's first solar power plant. Bonus modern fact. So um, that's a little kind of overview of Shiraz. What about Iranian drink and food while we're in this region? Are you, are you a fan of, of Iranian food? Um, funny enough, my favourite restaurant in um, Swansea is called Shiraz. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh, it's just so tasty. Um, I don't actually know the names of all of the dishes that I get no. because they've just got this like option. On, when, when you order online, you just say, I'm vegan. Feed me as much. Just give me loads of stuff, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it's different every time. But I really like this one. It's like um, it's like a big salad, and it's got like really it's they're like croutons, but they're big and like made with flatbread. Yes. Lots of olive oil, lots of lemon, like fatouche and stuff like that. Yeah, fatouche. Um, 
And they always put like pomegranate yes. and things. Oh, it's just delicious. That was the first thing I was going to pick up about Iranian food is I love that they always put a really tart berry in it, whether it's barberry or pomegranate. And they create mm. really intense sauces and molasses out of it that they coat with things. They put loads of fresh herbs in stuff, lots of um, pistachio and um, floral things as well, rose and whatever. So it, it's funny because it's really good summer food in that it's it's sort of light and a bit salady, but the flavours are so incredibly intense that it might as well mm -hmm. be a curry kind of experience, you know? That's what I love about Iranian foods, yeah. yeah. So um, Shiraz, just as a throwback to a recent episode, is very well known for its bitter oranges, which when I was doing my really long etymological tour of oranges, I said it came from Naranj, from, from that uh, region. And um, in fact, that area was known as Naranjistan. Um, so like the land of bitter oranges. A uh, couple of highlights that you um, might not necessarily know. A popular drink there is called Kasni which is chicory flower juice and that tastes a bit like lavender it's a very refreshing kind of floral um, and fruity thing because they add a lot of sugar to everything as well um, and one that I think well I definitely enjoy called faluda and faluda is like um, ice cream noodles <laughs> so they kind of starchify it a bit and push it through a noodle thing and then they serve it in rose water and you eat like these oh. ice cream noodles in rose water and it is oh. pretty great. Have you had that before? Yeah. <gasps> I want it. Yeah, it's great. So what we're saying is there's lots of really good intense flavours and tasty things to have um, in Iran. Going off to wine a little bit, there's a place uh, nearby called Mahalu Lake and it's a seasonal salt lake about an hour away from Shiraz and it has this um, pink hue to it because uh, the amount of red tide in it, red tide is a kind of um, algal bloom. The, so the strength kind of, of, of colour changes at different times of the year but they call it the wine lake because it looks like it looks like they're local <laughs> wines. Uh, there has been evidence of wine production there right from the Neolithic times. As soon as we've had pots, <laughs> they've been fermenting things in it and they've been doing it in that region. Um, so lots of archaeological evidence. In terms of written history, the first thing I know is from Herodotus. So it's from the perspective of a Greek person, you know, and the Greeks were obviously at war with the Persians <laughs> a lot. Um and this is sort of, and but what he did is he travelled around and he tried to get different stories from all um, sides of the Mediterranean of kind of different cultures and histories and, and whatever. Never accept what Herodotus says as truth, but there's going to be something in it. Um, so I've got this piece, uh, which is from his histories. If an important decision is to be made, they, meaning the Persians, discuss the question when they are drunk. And the following day, the master of the house where the discussion was held submits their decision for reconsideration when they are sober. If they still approve it, it is adopted. If not, it is abandoned. Conversely, any decision they make when they are sober is reconsidered afterwards when they are drunk. So first of all, what do you think about that as a concept? Mm, I would agree. <laughs> Never make a decision when you're drunk. 
And you, you know, I know, like leave it for the next day. If you want to do some online shopping, leave it in the checkout, but don't buy it. And then look at it again the next day and go, was it really a good mm. idea to buy that? Some, yeah, I guess so. I, I was going to draw the comparison that, um, and I think I've spoken about this before. I used to write all of my essays when I was really drunk and then edited them when I was sober. And yeah. then I'd get a really good mark. So I guess you don't make the final decision when you're drunk. No. Sometimes you have some good ideas. <laughs> I mean, this this was basically my master's degree at university. Uh, half of our lectures took place in the pub because the teacher very much espoused this idea that your ideas flowed more freely once you'd had a couple of jars. But then you make the decision as to what you're going to write about it the next day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, um, not sure that is entirely how it went because I think really what Herodotus was doing was criticising them for being too indulgent in their wine intake. Um, as we've spoken about before, the Greeks diluted uh, their wine. The uh, the Persians, or the, the Achaemenid, Achaemenid um, Empire, as they were known, uh, did not. They did not um, dilute their wine. And really for them, the luxury of having this wine was an expression of, of power. You know, they sort of they overindulged and it was lu- indulged and it was luxury because actually they sort of already had met their needs. And it was an expression specifically of the power of kings. So the kings would share it with others and they would do that um, using writon. Writon is actually a Greek word because the Greeks adopted it later on <laughs> for all their criticism of all oh, the Persians drink too much and their wine is too strong. Um, they adopted quite a lot of the practices um, in time. So a write-on is like a sort of very decorative, it's sort of like a horn, but it, it curves like a cornucopia type of thing. Um, highly decorated, you know, an example of great craftsmanship, usually usually metallic. And the king would uh, maybe stand there with his write-on and um, there's a hole sort of in the bottom part of it that you would cover with your finger and you would beckon over the most attractive cupbearer who would pour wine into the top the top kind of funnel part of it and then when they were done you would hold a bowl in your other hand and you would hold it with three fingers specifically there's a lot of images of this so we know that was the case three fingers with this little bowl and then you would let go of your finger and you would pour a stream from the right on into the cup and then stop it and that's where you would drink it from so it was quite a display of like beauty craftsmanship you know the wine and the the metals catching the light but also control uh, you know over what you were drinking and then you would share it with other people so it was very ceremonial um, i would not fare well <laughs> oh no you'd get it all over yourself and you'd probably be executed or something um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can see these write-ons in quite a few museums. The, in fact, the British Museum has an exhibition on this at the moment about... It's called From Luxury to Power, I think, and it's about the Persian influence on on Greece and how they interpreted what the uh, the Persians were doing as luxurious into their, their own space. So really interesting. Um, there's some more writing as well. Now, I don't know if I'm going to attempt to pronounce any of these because my... Um, Middle, East, Middle Eastern languages are not so good um, but the um, there's some descriptions of kind of like how it works so the, the cup bearer would give people um, varying amounts of wine so from as little wine as uh, would just wet their throats and they'd be happy about it and then for some it would give them as much as they get unconsciously drunk and there is a word for that uh, there's a word for 
I mean, I'll try to pronounce Is this that one. Chin it? Sa- it's not chin it. Um, <laughs> sa- Sarandaz or something like that. And it means so drunk that they're turning their heads left and right. Which I love that they have a word for that. <laughs> yeah. It's like blackout drunk, turning your head left and right. And then there's another one which is just heavily drunk, Sarabaluda, which means soaked in wine. Um, and uh, they, what they had was actually seven lines on the side of a cup. And that would determine kind of what your own tolerance was. So the people who had lower tolerance would start on the lowest line. And there's a word for that. Um, <laughs> and then um, and it goes up a little stronger, a little stronger, until eventually you get to the people who can drink the most uh, without being too affected. Yes, you. And um, <laughs> they would be referred to as uh, haftkat, which means seven-liner. So you would be a seven-liner if you were a seven-liner. hearty drinker. <laughs> but there's a lot of language around ways to drink wine, traditions and drinking wine. So it tells you like how much of a part of everyday conversation it actually was. Not just the fact that they had, you know, the odd fancy glass or whatever, but they had so many different terms for this being an important thing. Um, according to Iranian legend, I think you're going to like this. This is, so of the origin stories of wine we've gone through before, like with Bacchus and Greece and whatever, um, and actually, they're all generally really good. I remember when we did the um, we did the tequila episode and kind of the, the origins of alcohol there were excellent, if you want to listen to that one. Okay, this is the Iranian one. Wine was discovered by a girl despondent over her rejection by the king. The girl decided to commit suicide by drinking the spoiled residue left by rotting table grapes. Instead of poisoning the girl, the fermented must caused her to pass out to awaken the next morning with the realisation that life was worth living. She reported back to the king her discovery of the intoxicating qualities of the spoiled grape juice and was rewarded for her find. <laughs> that's, the or- I mean... that's the origin of booze in Iran, apparently. is Some girl was like, I've been turned down by the king, I'm going to kill myself. Oops, I got drunk. Actually, that's much better. Let's all get on with our lives. <laughs> that is such a Hun story. <laughs> The Iranian, the Iranian alcohol hun. backstory is yeah. just a hun. It really is. It really is. <laughs> um, so stories like this were um, passed on by poets. I said, you know, it's a city. It's a culture of poetry. Um, and of course, that would have been by oral tradition for most of the time. And they did this through tea houses. And in fact, if you go there now, they still do this. If you go to a tea house um, in one of the Iranian cities, there will be a poet telling stories um, and that has been unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. It's most likely how we get the collection of stories that is 1001 Nights. Do you know that? Are you familiar with 1001 Nights? No. Um, in So in this country, it's probably more known by um, the, the Arabian Nights or the Arabian Tales. And they contain the stories of Aladdin and um, Alibaba and Sinbad and all that sort of stuff. If you've seen the the um, Disney film Aladdin, Arabian Nights. I was Arabian Nights. That. <laughs> that. So we, yeah. we call it that. Um, so it's um, it's a collection of stories, like folk tales, kind of like you would get with maybe the Grimm Brothers collections and things like that. So it has no specific author. It's 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 passed down by tradition, but it's incredible 
in that it has this this f overarching frame of um, a young woman called Shahrazada, and she is um, as I said earlier. There's a king, and basically he's awful. He will only sleep with virgins, and after he slept with a virgin, he executes her the next day. And he's Ooh. he's ploughed his way and executed his way through all the virgins in the city until there's only one left, Scheherazade. She's the daughter of the vizier, of, of the main advisor. And so she's kind of puts up her hand. She's like, okay, I will go and do it. But she's got a plan. Her plan to stay alive is that every night when he comes to her to bed her, she's going to tell him a story. And she's going to tell him a story so enthralling that he forgets to have sex with her and he gets tired, but also ends on a cliffhanger so that he has to come back the next night. And that's why it's called A Thousand and One Nights, because she reportedly does it for A Thousand and One Nights of, of storytelling. And Genius. it's not necessarily a Western cliffhanger, as we would understand it, but a lot of the kind of characters recur or problems that get unresolved, you know, um, or whatever. It's more like Jerry Springer stuff. <laughs> Maybe. I was going to say, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not quite EastEnders, but, you know, you get the idea. Um <laughs> No, but it has all these self-contained stories within it, but like with recurring themes and recurring characters. And um, I, I will say, because I mentioned uh, the stories of Aladdin and um, Ali Baba, they were actually added into the collection of A Thousand and One Nights much later on by a French man who compiled the stories and translated them for um, a Western audience. But it does still contain lots of traditional storytelling. Anyway, that was a bit of a diversion. <laughs> what I was saying is, like these, when you read A Thousand and One Nights, all these stories would have been told in the tea houses, um, and the the sort of the, the legends of, you know, a girl trying to survive being rebuffed by a king um, is part of that tradition as well. Um, here's, I think, the most famous poem to uh, come out of an Iranian tradition. It's by a very well-known poet there called Sadi. The children of Adam are the members of each other, who are in their creation from the same essence. When day and age hurt one of these members, other members will be left with no serenity. If you are unsympathetic to the misery of others, it is not right that they should call you a human being. This poem is actually on the carpet installed in the United Nations building in New York um, that they put there in 2005 which I think is really nice. I mean, not only because it's like, you know, it's do no harm to other people um, as a sentiment, but I like that they've not just gone with, you know, an American poet or maybe something kind of modern and expected. They've looked into somewhere that is perhaps now riddled with a bit more conflict and gone, let's remember when everything was kind of a bit more peaceful and loving. Um, so that was a tradition poem, but... The period of time I want to point you to is the 9th century in the city of Shiraz because it's by that point it's really got a reputation for producing the finest wine in the world. Everyone knows if you want great wine you go to Shiraz in the 9th century. Well I'm not sure the Vikings knew otherwise they probably wouldn't have raided Britain so much but you know other people <laughs> know this. Um, and what, what it did is inspired an entire genre of poetry. So whereas we might think of like romance or pastoral poetry in this country, they had wine poetry in Iran. <laughs> it's known as Kamria. Kamria is what it's called. The most famous one I know of personally uh, was a guy called Abu, Abu Nuvas. Abu Nuvas was 9th century. He was born in southwest Iran um, in Avaz, but he dies in Baghdad. So, you know, sometimes you get a lot of stories about him being from Baghdad, but he, he 
died there. He actually appears several times in One Thousand and One Nights as a character because, like, he was he was that well known. I'll read his poetry to you first, um, a bit of that, and then I'll explain kind of why I know him. Personally, or... not not personally. No, I'm not <laughs> that friggin' old. Um, but I feel like we would have chilled. Boasting myriad colours when it spreads out in glass, silencing all tongues, showing off her body, golden, like a peel on a tailor's strong, in the hand of a lithe young man who speaks beautifully in response to a lover's request. With a curl on each temple and a look in his eye that spells disaster. He is a Christian. He wears clothes from Kurasan and his tunic bears his upper chest and neck. Were you to speak to this elegant beauty, you would fling Islam from the top of a tall mountain. If I were not afraid of the depredation of he who leads all sinners into transgression, I would convert to his religion, entering it knowingly with love, for I know that the Lord would not have distinguished this youth so, unless he's, his was the true religion. Pretty incendiary stuff <laughs> for 9th mm. century Iran when... Now, you've got to remember, like, this is the period of time when Islam was just kind of coming into Iran, taking over from um, the Arabic world. And there was this real tension between adopting the religion, adopting some of the practices, still wanting to celebrate wine. Um, and you find these writings that come up that are sort of ridiculing the idea of propriety, particularly heterosexual propriety. Um, um, and you know very homoerotic kind of ridiculing the alcohol ban and Islam itself to an extent even though he's sort of putting himself forward as Islamic he's saying yes but if God is all powerful then why would he create something so beautiful as wine and this boy surely by, by taking them I get closer to God and his experiences and he's really like yeah he's pushing a few buttons um <laughs> And this is, this is kind of primarily why I know of him still, because I think a lot of people um, who have Islamic heritage or, or Iranian or come out of it, and particularly if you're in the queer community as part of um, that diaspora, you know this guy because he sort of represents those ideas and those voices and those traditions that were lost um, a long mm -hmm. time ago. So I, I've, I heard of Abu Nuas because of, um, because of that, essentially. But he is very interesting. Another hand. Really? He's basically another hun. He wrote a lot... Just, just let me drink wine and bang people. Yeah, Jesus, he wrote a lot of very erotic poetry, very wine-driven, very sort of questioning um, how religion could forbid anything that was divine. Um, one more... <laughs> I feel like we need to do like a spin-off episode. I don't know. I just... Arabian huns. I'd be up for that. <laughs> um, I'll give you one more wine poem um, before I move us on to the kind of modern period. This is another very popular one from the, uh, it's actually from the mid 10th century, Rudaki of Samarkand. He says, bring me yon wine which thou mightst call a melted ruby in its cup, or like a scimitar unsheathed in the sun's noontide, light held up. Tis the rose water thou mightst say, yea thence distilled for purity. Its sweetness falls as sleep's own balm steals over the vigil-wearied eye. I just really like, particularly for Shiraz, the image of a melted ruby in its cup. Mm, I, I like that, and also distilled for purity. Mm -hmm. 
So, if you fancy uh, reading lots of poetry about wine, I suggest you delve into that whole genre from... Remember, this is like the first millennium, Iran. It's uh, it's great. Right. Um, so, getting into sort of more European territories, the European merchants in the 17th century, that's when they really discovered Shiraz, Shiraz wine. They get very enthusiastic. The English and French travellers are going over there. They're making their clippings. They're trying the wine. Um, they say that um, it has a more dilute character due to the irrigation, but the best Shiraz wines are actually grown in terraced vineyards around the village of Kolar. They were white and existed... The, the wines, not the Europeans, obviously they were. Um, existed in two different styles. Dry wines for drinking young and sweet wines meant for ageing. And the latter wines, the aged ones, were compared to an old sherry, which obviously is what Europeans would be familiar with and they really liked. Um, at five years of age, it was said to have a fine bouquet and nutty flavour, so that's not a lot of ageing for something like that. Uh, the dry white Shiraz wines, but not the sweet ones, were fermented with a lot of stem contact, which made them very tannic, which we can still think of uh, with Shiraz wines, even though they're not these Shiraz wines. <laughs> um... So, travellers describe the wines as white. There's no ampelographic descriptions of the vines or grapes. Um, ampelographic, is that a word you've come across? It's, it's, I can't say it's one that I'm... It's relatively with. useful. It just It's the field of botany that's concerned with the identification and classification of grape vines. Of course. Ampelographic. How didn't I know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marco Polo mentions it. Um, in, and there are other classical accounts of I like this, so the vines are trained by pulleys and weights to grow up one side of a house and down another so they don't have kind of like all these trellised vineyards and stuff they use the actual structures of the houses to go all the way over like a big vine comb over <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know those are the descriptions up to the 19th century uh, in modern Iran, as you may suspect Shiraz wine cannot be produced legally uh, due to the prohibition of alcohol in Islam. Before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, there were up to 300 wineries in Iran, and now there are none. So, as a whole, Iran is no longer a wine-producing country, although Iranian Christians are legally allowed to ferment wine. If you're a religious minority in Iran, you are still allowed to drink alcohol. Um... So, yeah, as you mentioned, there is no proven connection between the city of Shiraz and the modern-day red grape variety Shiraz, which was planted in Australia, in South Africa, in Argentina, in Canada, in the US, and some other countries. Um, it's identical to the Syrah grape. So, it was brought to Australia by James Busby, who is known as the father of Australian wine. And Busby travelled through Spain and France collecting vine cuttings uh, that were the foundations of the Australian wine industry. So even kind of the idea that Busby calling it Shiraz might have taken it from Iran is, is not true. He, he went around France and Spain. He was actually Scottish. He was born in Edinburgh, although the son of an English engineer. Um, and his parents emigrated from Britain uh, to New South Wales in 1824. He, uh, Busby, was given a, a grant of land from the governor of New South Wales and he eventually chose this 2,000-acre site in the Coal River area of the Hunter region where he began growing grapes. He also taught viticulture while he was there too before moving to New Zealand where he also planted grapes 
And actually, the grapes he planted in New Zealand bore useful fruit before his Australian ones. Because good growing conditions. Um, also, he was pretty instrumental in the founding of modern or colonial New Zealand, if you prefer. Right from suggesting a flag design, which was eventually chosen by the Maori chiefs. That's not the one we know now. It was the United Tribes of New Zealand flag, um, if you want to look it up. Right through to the controversial 19 1835 Declaration of Independence of New Zealand and the 1840 Treaty of Waitangi. It's controversial because it sort of makes out that it's giving certain rights to the Maori people, but it was written in two different versions, Maori and English, and in the English version it makes very clear that the English owned the lands. And they did it because France had threatened to colonise New Zealand and take it over. So English were like, well, we'll get there first if we persuade and we get permission from uh, the Maori chiefs. And that, that treaty kind of still kind of keeps coming back in law, even though it wasn't originally a legal text. But I won't go into that, it's too complicated. Anyway, um, James Busby actually died in England in 1871 in Annerley. I pronounce properly, not Annerley as it's spelt. <laughs> Um, after travelling back for an eye operation, and he, he died and he's buried in West Norwood Cemetery um, in London, if you want to go and see the founder of um, Australian wine. What a way to go, Annerley. Yep. Um, you know, that that's kind of pretty much it. Um, giving you a flavour of, of Shiraz and wine poetry, which I think was the most important thing I wanted to offer, because I think it's fascinating. Mm. Um, I didn't want to go too far into the ban, and also the whole etymological connection between Shiraz Syrah back to Shiraz it's so murky like I can't figure out exactly what the truth of any of it is so I think the moral is don't worry about it just drink it <laughs> enjoy it chin it don't worry about the origins <laughs> yeah I've got <laughs> I just tried to pour myself no, some with the cap see? on did you see that that's why you don't you go first like, yeah. you're a mess by the end exactly um <laughs> Just tried to pour the bottle with the cap on is what happened. Um, I, I think I've literally only got one more thing I was going to say and then I'll hand back to you for anything else you've got, which was that um, in a throwback to the mummy juice episode, mm, um, yes. as I was doing my research, I noticed adverts for something called Shiraz on the Shelf, which if you remember the, the fad that literally no one liked called Elf on a Shelf as the oh, Christmas yeah. gift. Yeah, mm -hmm. someone decided to mummy juice that and sell $30 worth of Shiraz on the shelf, which is pretty much just a bottle of Shiraz called Shiraz on the shelf that you put on the shelf and you drink when you as a mummy are so stressed you need to drink wine. Uh, if you don't know what, what we're despairing about, go and listen to the mummy juice episode. <laughs> Dear God, that's the worst. I think that's worse than anything we talked about on that It probably is. It probably it doesn't even rhyme. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. What, have you got anything for me in closing? I have. I found an article because, well, the reason I went down this rabbit hole is because I often cook with Shiraz. Uh, if I'm making like a bolognese or something like that, or a ragu, I'll whack a bit of Shiraz in there. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked online about that, if there were any tips and tricks, and I found an article... Um, where basically they'd interviewed a bunch of top chefs and wine experts about cooking with wine and I've collated a do's and don'ts list of cooking with wine. Okay. Um, so before I get into it, like, do you have an approach when you cook with wine? Like, do you go out especially to buy the wine for cooking or is it like no. what you've got? I, I mean, I use leftovers 
So mm-hmm. I know it's not a familiar concept for you, so I'm presuming you go out and buy it, but um, <laughs> sometimes I've opened a bottle of wine that I haven't quite finished. There's a little bit left in the bottom. That's when I usually cook with wine. I don't often open a bottle of wine specifically for cooking, but the, mm-hmm. the wine I use is still good. Like I haven't let it go, you know, sour or acidic or off or anything. It's still yeah. tasty. I think that's important. If you wouldn't drink mm-hmm. it, you probably shouldn't cook with it. <laughs> unless unless I will I will say the only thing I would probably put gone off wine in is a vindaloo. Don't <laughs> chuck anything in there. <laughs> well, no, I mean vindaloo it's a Portuguese kind of curry dish, mm-hmm. right? And it does mean it, that's where the vin part of it comes from is the wine. And yeah. you want it to be acidic because you need like it's a vindaloo is essentially like a sweet and sour curry that comes from Portugal. So it's it's hot, it's highly flavoured, and you want the wine to be very acidic because you need the, the acid to kind of complement the other flavours. So that's mm-hmm. the only time I use it. It's not it's not okay. just because you can't taste anything, like that is the style of a vindaloo. Yeah, okay, I get it. Um, yeah, lots, lots of people have different approaches with cooking with wine. Some people will just kind of find a bottle at the back of the fridge that they've like forgotten about Christ knows how long it's been there mm-hmm. and they'll go oh, I'll just use that in a risotto or whatever doesn't matter uh, some people just religiously go well you know it's just wine and I'm cooking with it so it's going to burn off all the alcohols so it doesn't matter I'll just buy some cheap crap um, so yeah I'm here to dispel or support mm-hmm. these thoughts um, so according to the experts uh, do choose a wine that you love the taste of. Um, so if you're choosing a wine to cook with, you need to choose one that you like the, the taste of. A lot of people have the fantasy that you cook with you know, cheap wine, bad wine, leftover wine that's gone off and not good enough to drink. Um, that's all wrong. If you cook with bad wine, you get bad food. <laughs> um, so yeah, choose a nice tasting wine that's preferably not gone off. Um, you touched upon the leftover wine. Leftover wine, it has to be still good. Don't leave it too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use a wine that's already been opened, but it shouldn't be too old. Um, how, how long would you say your threshold is for cooking with wine that's been opened? Oh, probably about three or four days, I reckon. Mm. Interestingly, according to this chef, no more than two weeks. Oh, which yeah, I know that. That's a long time. Yeah, that wouldn't happen in my place. Um, so yeah you've got two weeks so after two weeks you can change how the wine tastes and how the flavours of the food will turn out but um, yeah I thought that was a long time to it is a long time I can definitely notice a difference in flavours for most wines I would say that I've opened after Mm. three or four days I notice it's starting to turn and that's when I'll be like oh I'll use that for cooking now rather than just taste it yeah but you know everyone's everyone's taste profiles are different aren't they each their own um, the next tip I think is going to come in handy. Uh, do use flat sparkling wine. So if you've got a wine that's not been in the fridge too long, but obviously it's gone flat and it's very disappointing, you can still cook with that. So um, a good Australian sparkling, um, one chef said is great in some dishes, especially if you have some leftover that won't keep. Um, don't be afraid to use it once it's gone flat. You can use that just like you would a white wine, you know, it's it's an ingredient at the end of the day, it's going to give you the same mm-hmm. flavour, you don't need it to be fizzy in your dish, you just need the flavour. <laughs> um, so flat white sparkling wine is perfect. Mm-hmm. 
Do you like it when your dish is fizzy? Fizzy dish? I love a fizzy risotto, me. Mm. <laughs> oh, uh, my, my I just remembered the fizzy crisps. <laughs> oh, God, stop with the fizzy crisps. We can't get back there again. Um, my, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't fizzy either. It was bicarb and it burned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my top use for um, flats, uh, sparkling wine, would be uh, desserts. So, like, to make a jelly out of it is really good. Mm. Stick some yeah. agar agar in it, stick it in the fridge, boom, done. I always remember that crazy um, Bombas and Par experience I had where um, they gave us all kinds of weird and wonderful things to eat. And one of them was a deconstructed glass of champagne where they handed you the glass of champagne and it was completely flat. And then they handed you a grape that was enormous. And basically they'd injected all the fizz into the grapes. So you took the wine into your mouth to get the flavour and then you bite into the grape and you get the burst of fizz. Mm -hmm. I could try doing that at home. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do? Like you stick a grape on your soda stream nozzle and just pump it, <laughs> see what happens. Highly recommended. I'll put it on the spreadsheet the next time I'm up. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sounds good. Not in my house. <laughs> Next tip, mm. uh, don't use too much wine. Boo. Uh, follow, follow the recipe. Uh, using too much wine in your cooking can put the whole dish out of balance. You generally want the wine to just be one of the flavours that complements the food. You don't want it to dominate it. Um, if you haven't got a recipe and you're winging it, just add a splash at first and then taste and add more if needs be. You don't want it to just taste like wine. <laughs> Well, Unless you just that's what they say. That. That's what they think. <laughs> uh, um, next tip: Do have fun cooking with white wines. Um, I think we've both cooked with white wine this week. Funny enough, I've cooked. I've made two different dishes with white wine this week. Yes, share to tell us what they are. Care to share what they are? Uh, yeah. Well, one was pretty typical risotto, uh, but mm -hmm. I made it with pearl barley. Um, and courgettes and shallots mm. um, and that was really delicious I love pearl barley risotto I know like rice is the typical one but I think pearl barley is great because it's still like soft and gooey but you get a bit of bite mm -hmm. um, my second dish I'm actually going to partake more of when I get back is um, it's kind of like creamy cheesy leeks that I made with, with white wine. So cook cook the leeks and white wine, added butter, added um, uh, like a, a cashew cream and some miso and some nutritional yeast and some other things. And it makes it all kind of like this creamy, cheesy, leaky thing. And I had it a couple of days ago with pasta, but I've got a whole bunch left and I'm going to have that as a fondue with uh, some baguettes and the rest of this Shiraz when I get home. That's my plan. Oh, yes. So I'm actually having mm. red wine, sipping red wine whilst I dip bread into white wine. Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't enjoy some leaky cheese? Yeah. Did that do it for you, that whole... That did. I, I needed a moment then. <laughs> I think I forgot how to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, out of interest, what white wine did you use for your risotto and your leaky cheese? It was actually Sauvignon Blanc. Ah, interesting. Mm. So, according to the chefs, you have to do be careful um, with the white wines. Uh, so, if you're cooking something citrus-based, um, they recommend using a Riesling. A creamy sauce, so like the ones that 
you've cooked, uh, perfect with Chardonnay or Pinot Grigio. However, you have to be very careful with the Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, those flavours are very powerful and they don't go well in a delicate dish. I, I mean, the, dipping bread in a fondue with red wine is not really delicate. So no, it's I not. I know, <laughs> I know it's very well. I mean, I, I drank the Sauvignon, so I knew what it tasted like. I knew how to use yeah. it. Um, mm. You know, the trick, I mean, with the the creamy leek thing, if you imagine, so my, my Sauvignon had quite a, a very citrusy flavour. If you imagine with leek and cream, you need some acid, you need some citrus to cut through it, to lift it, to make it fresh. Otherwise, it's just mm -hmm. going to taste like fat, right? So yeah. that's why I put it in that one. And with the risotto, if I'd if the flavours had just been courgettes, then yeah, it would have overpowered it. But I put loads of black pepper in as well, so it balanced mm -hmm. with that. Yeah, and I, look, I know it's balanced my flavours, mate. Don't you, don't you tell me I can't use Sauvignon. <laughs> Um, the next section, moving on to reds, uh, it's getting a bit meaty meat because this chef's obviously a meaty chef. Mm -hmm. Um, so he says, don't use reds with strong tannins. A lighter red like Pinot Noir is great with pork, mushrooms and salmon. Other reds that go well in lots of cooking, especially with red meat, are the classic Shiraz, Merlot, Carbonet Merlot, those kind of varieties. Um, you don't want anything too strong in tannins or acid. For example, a young... I love this bit because he says it as if you've got it in your cupboard. For example, a young Kunawara Carbonet might overpower the dish. <laughs> okay, I'll just, I'll just write like, that one down. Yeah, he sounds like a dick. Um, I will keep putting what I want in my booze, in mm -hmm. my uh, food, thank you. I use a, a strong tannin in... Um, I like the, the tannins mm -hmm. in like a stew and a nice hearty winter stew. I, I want that. I do too. If I'm if I'm cooking yeah. something fatty, I love um, I love tannins in it as well. Do you know this isn't cooking with it, but my flake my favorite food to have with red wine is chips. Mm. Because I just think you cannot be fat and carbs with a red wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, use it I if you want to use it. You. I remember texting you because Chris had a really expensive red wine at Christmas time, and he was eating it with uh, he was eating watsits with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> watsits yeah. and a really expensive red, and you yeah. were like, "Yeah, I approve." <laughs> I I can understand it. I think anything kind of oily goes really well, but uh, yeah, no, I I understand with the suggestion with cooking. It does depend kind of because as you say, like a lot of these people are thinking, well, red wine sauce, we're just going to put it over meat, and therefore we don't want it to be tannic. Which yeah. I can understand because the whole dish would get too bitter. But I think if you're having things with lots of fat and sugar, like we might, then uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah. And just just to clarify, everyone, hold back on the young Kunawara Cabernet. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. If we're going to learn one thing from this episode, it's that. <laughs> Never mind about the poetry. Um, last tip. Last tip is you can or do stick to a lower price. Um, so at the end of the day, in cooking, wine is just another ingredient. And like any other ingredient, its quality is going to play a role in how tasty the dish is. Um, but the reality is, is that you need to find a balance between quality and budget. Um, I enjoy expensive tasty wines, and I think I would rather drink an, uh, an expensive tasty wine. Um, I, I feel like I can make a very tasty dish with a red wine that costs half the price of a very expensive tasty wine that I would much prefer to drink from a glass. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you don't need to go over the top and use special varieties and whatever. Just 
Find one that you like, spend what you want, enjoy your dish. Good. So don't go cheap and cheerful, in, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Don't go cheap and cheerful and don't go wine that's been in your fridge for months that you forgot about. Yeah, find find that middle ground mm -hmm. space. And do not use the young Kunawara Cabernet. For God's sake. Whatever just, you fucking do. Could we please not? <laughs> We've told you time and time again. <laughs> Hey, you were the one who wanted to do a section on food. This is like, true. You know, yes, I did bring up ice cream noodles in rose water, and yes, I do want them right now. <laughs> but uh, you were the one who did a whole section on it. Are we done? Is that it? Are we shirazed out? I'm, I'm ready to go and eat my entire kitchen. And so our glasses <laughs> have run dry with tannins. Prithee, Syrah, pour some more so she can get on the razz. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Are you going to play us up with Kays? Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or you can always hear me sing in this song, show me the way to go when I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. No. No, she said, Arabian hands. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> I'm going to stop. Yeah. <laughs>